0: For a a, a woman, the Benin Kingdom was paid 50 Manilas. For a male, 57 Manilas. And and so, you know, you can crunch the numbers on how many uh, Manilas would have been required to make an overhead. I mean, this probably, I don't know, I would imagine maybe about three people or four people required to be enslaved. You see, no one has ever done that kind of thing. This, this, this—you know—once again, the descendants of enslaved Africans have never been considered. Uh, uh, information that we need has never been done. The research has just never been done. I mean, really, we do not even know for sure how many people they enslaved. We have minimized the number to 103,000 because the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database clearly indicates that that number of people were sold by the Benin Kingdom. But there are all other levels of trade that went on. For example, the Benin Kingdom controlled the whole waterfront for much of the Nigerian slave trade. That's about 3.5 million people. They they were paid tribute for all of the people that were enslaved. Okay, so there's a portion of their wealth and the creation of bronzes and just in general, that was wealth accumulated there that came from selling just about everyone that was sold from Nigeria.
1: Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And that was Restitution Study Group founder and executive director Adria Farmer-Pellman discussing the hidden history behind the Benin Bronzes. As the featured guest for this month, Ms. Farmer-Pellman shares about the Restitution Study Group's mission and work to seek slavery justice, and what led her and the Restitution Study Group to file suit on behalf of themselves and other similarly situated descendants of slaves against the Smithsonian Institution for Shared Custody. Of 16th to 19th century Benin bronzes, which have been cited by scholars and historical records as having been created with Manilas, currency given by slave traders to the Kingdom of Benin in exchange for the lives of men and women. DeAdria Farmer Pellman, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Stephanie.
1: Would you begin with? the genesis of the Restitution Study Group and its mission?
0: The Restitution Study Group was founded in 2000, essentially to focus on uh, injustices against the descendants of enslaved Africans, and as well as the, the crime of slavery. So our goal essentially is to fight for, for slavery justice.
1: And how has that evolved uh, since you began? It's, it's, you've had uh, different focuses, it seems. And so would you walk us through a, a brief history of those?
0: Yeah, well, our primary focus has always been on the issue of slavery um, and entities that are complicit in slavery. Um, for example, corporations, private estates, or even governments.
1: I've seen uh, instances where you filed suit against insurance companies f- for slavery uh, policies, for example. Could you kind of just give a brief history of that?
0: Sure, sure. I um, I, Well, first of all, I got an interest in in uh, the whole issue of slavery reparation when I was a kid, because my grandfather used to talk about the 40 acres and the mule that were owed to descendants of enslaved Africans and, and actually to our ancestors. Originally, who were enslaved, um, but it was never given. Most of us never received anything, any kind of compensation, or any kind of what we call justice for the years of enslavement. Um, so, I, you know, I, I went to law school with the with the goal to develop a case, and I ended up focusing on corporations and even private estates that were complicit in slavery. The federal government has sovereign immunity. I found out while I was in law school there was a decision in 94 um, uh, that Cato v. U.S. is the case that basically prohibited, uh, made it clear that you cannot sue the federal government without getting permission. Uh, So I focused on the private estates. And in the year 2000, which was a year after I graduated from law school, I began to reach out to companies that I had uh, identified through research. Aetna Incorporated was one. They had written life insurance policies on the lives of, of enslaved people with the slave owners as the beneficiaries. And what this did was it, it actually it, uh, gave uh, it, it slave, uh, plantation owners the comfort in, per, in investing in humans. It's, it actually allowed for more enslavement to take place. At a time when enslaved people were very expensive, folks were reluctant to make the investment. And, and these Aetna policies, New York Life Insurance's predecessor company, the Nautilus Life Insurance Company, and many others. J.P. Morgan Chase even had a predecessor company involved in writing these slave policies. It was basically, don't worry about it. If, the, if your enslaved person dies, we've got you covered. Um, and so they didn't pay the full amount uh, if, a, an, if an enslaved person died, but they did pay enough to make the investment work. But that's one. There were also banks that were engaged. Uh, some insurance companies, you know, ultimately were absorbed into banks. For example, J.P. Morgan Chase. And um, there were other companies that we targeted, um, uh, uh, railroad companies, tobacco companies. Um, yeah, so any, any, any entity that we could find that played a role. Uh, we filed a lawsuit in, in 2002, and we had a partial victory. Um, the court would, we, we had two types of arguments. Some of them were um, consumer fraud arguments and some of them were human rights arguments. We were not successful on the human rights arguments because the court argued that we were not, most of us were not the right people to file the lawsuits because we were many generations away from the enslaved people. Um, and, uh, but the consumer fraud cases where companies had lied to us about their role in slavery, we were given the go ahead to pursue that. Unfortunately, we didn't have the resources at that time. And so we couldn't we couldn't um, finish the case. But we do have uh, a precedence that that basically says if a company lies about its role in slavery, they can be held liable under fraud.
1: So that that leaves the door open for you in the future to bring other suits with
0: that. We absolutely do intend to do that. Mm -hmm.
1: My understanding is that uh, Restitution Study Group and you, being the the head of that, have also employed DNA testing to link uh, current descendants with the slave trade, uh, their ancestors having been taken in the slave trade. Could you kind of describe how that has played a role in the lawsuits that you bring?
0: Right. Well, we actually had brought a lawsuit that was withdrawn, unfortunately, because our attorney- was sick. but um, we filed a case against um, companies using DNA testing. We were able to use the DNA test and the Transatlantic Slave Trade database to trace ourselves to certain companies. And this was this was at the very beginning of these uh, these what you call consumer DNA tests. Um, we they they okay the, the company was called African Ancestry is still out there. Uh, And they give a limited amount of information about your DNA. They will link you to essentially one ethnic group. And so many of us were able to take this test in 2004 and trace ourselves um, on the transatlantic slave trade database, trace those ethnic groups to the various countries, and then examine uh, who was engaged in those voyages, companies, and so on and so forth. And we filed an action. Uh, for genocide compensation. In other words, slavery reparations is one type of argument. Genocide compensation really addressed the fact that we are victims of ethnicide a form of genocide. Our ethnic groups have been erased. Most of us don't know where we're from. And this was the beginning of us learning that. Um, and so once we had a clue, we wanted to make a demand that they help us to get the education, to be able to make make investments in land so that we can have homes in our original homelands, things of that nature. And so it was for genocide compensation. And that's consistent with the law. It's not a, a, a law that the public can generally use. It's a, it's a criminal law. It's called the Proxmire Act that basically can, uh, the federal government can hold an entity liable for genocide um, when it comes to the destruction of a group in whole or in part. And in our case, we our identities have destroyed it. So the law does protect that. Only thing is, the federal government has to file those cases. We we essentially work with the common law, or or the, the, what is the law of nature against genocide, uh, uh, ethnocide against humans. And so that was the basis of the argument. But once again, the case had to be pulled because our attorney was sick and it's not the kind of case that every lawyer knows how to litigate. We just happen to have someone that was particularly skilled and who was yeah. very eloquent.
1: So that's again something else that in the future you uh would be pursuing
0: Oh absolutely I mean not just me. There's a lot of folks who never really examined the the arguments around genocide. Yeah. And in fact, if we can get with uh federal government to create a private right of action it would be a a strong vehicle for a lot of the arguments that people make around slavery reparations for example that act actually protects the lynching that we see going on Mm. against uh, african-american people by the police Mm. this this constant killing i mean you know when when folks are killed who are unarmed who are innocent it's not just a crime against one person it's a crime against a group of people and it falls into that category of genocide. Well, the Proxmire Act actually protects us from that. And we've been trying to get the president who actually introduced the bill. He actually is the one, it, it started out with um, Senator Proxmire who uh, became ill and was not able to, to finish off the fight. Joe Biden, President Biden actually took on the, the, the bill. And when it was signed, it was in, it had been introduced by him. So we've been asking him to apply this genocide act to cases of police brutality, um, because it would get 10 to 20 additional years and 500,000 to a million dollars in compensation to the family members who lose a person due to these acts of genocide. But they are genocide in any other country. The kinds of crimes that are committed against black people would be considered genocide or ethnocide. Uh, It's just here for some reason, descendants of enslaved Africans are just not able to get the kind of justice that other groups of people are given. Yeah. And, uh, and that sort of brings us to one of the newer uh, newer categories of cases that we're dealing with. Um, but I'll leave you to, <laughs> to ask yeah. your questions to get into that.
1: <laughs> the suit you're talking about involves the Benin bronzes, and it is such an interesting layer to this restitution conversation, would you describe your position and the suit that you brought? And actually, perhaps before we even get to the suit, it involves the Smithsonian. And just reading your declaration, it's so compelling, uh, The the entire dialogue you had with the Smithsonian before suit was even filed. So I'll leave it to you to just walk us through that, if you would.
0: Sure. First, let me show you what it is that the case is about. It's about Benin bronzes. And and Benin bronzes are iconic sculptures and other types of artifacts made of metal. Uh, They're made of bronze. This is an example of an overhead uh, uh, of a Benin bronze. This is made out of plastic, though. Um, (laughs) But uh, Benin bronzes, they, they began manufacturing them in the kingdom of Benin, which is today located in Nigeria. Uh, in the 12th century, and they made them, but they're actually still making some version of these, but but the ones that we're focused on were made all the way to the 19th century. Um, They were manufactured with the refabrication of this thing it's called the Manila. This was a form of currency um, that the kingdom of Benin was paid in exchange for people they enslaved, okay? So they had captives that they sold to European slave traders, starting with the Portuguese in the uh, the 16th century and all the way into the 19th century, Uh, British, American, um, uh, Dutch, uh, many other different types of uh, nations were involved with trading of humans for these Manilas, and they were paid to the Benin Kingdom. They would melt them down, Refabricate them into the bronzes, okay. And so, the today there are about ten thousand of these relics circulating around the world. In 1896, it was a massacre committed by the Kingdom of Benin against unarmed British soldiers and African porters who were coming to visit the Oba of Benin to discuss trade agreements. That had been violated by the Kingdom of India. In the Union. In included in these violations was a prohibition against slave trading and sacked the human sacrifice of enslaved people. The British had gotten the kingdom to agree to stop this practice. It had been their practice since the 12th century to sack to, to capture slaves and and c- kill them. And this was their religious practice. It was part of the practice that they utilized these overheads for and other relics. They would arrange them on an altar, and and folks would be slaughtered for whatever power the kingdom was trying to access at a given moment. Enslaved people could be hung uh, uh, to make it rain, or to make it stop raining. Whatever the case is, this was a major part of life in the kingdom of the moon. Sadly, it's still a part of life in the Kingdom of Benin. People are not fully aware of it, but I'll talk a little bit about that later on. But the whole notion of, of organ harvesting, this is a big practice. And slave trafficking never stops So this is still a part of their lives. We made a demand for a share of these relics because for 300 years, the Kingdom of Benin enslaved us in order to get the metal to make the bronzes, Prior to that time, from the 12th to the 15th century, they had access from northern traders in Africa to to bring the copper that they needed to to make the bronzes. But the trade route had shut down, and there was no access to this metal at all. And they were engaged in slave trading already with the Portuguese, but they were trading for cowrie shells. And Mm -hmm. instead of the cowrie shells, they required the metal because they needed it to make these relics. It was very important to them, to their culture. They even have a whole culture of, of the worshipping of metal within the Benin Kingdom. I and mean, it's still something that's recognized today. In any mm-hmm. case, bottom line was that we made this request. We reached out to the Nigerian government and asked for meetings. We actually had we were able to get a meeting with uh, uh, Pedro Leyuola, who is the is a princess. She is the granddaughter of the Oba who initiated the whole movement for the return of the bronzes in 1933. She was acting as advisor to the current Oba of the movement, and she said that our claim is legitimate. We have a legitimate claim. The problem is that the government, the Nigerian government, was managing the whole effort on the return of the bronzes, and she referred us to to the um, head of the National Commission for Museums and Monuments. That's Dr. Aba Isa Tijani. And he never responded to us. We reached out to him over and over again, no response whatsoever. We even found $300 million from the foundation to work on some kind of coordinated effort for sharing um, between the descendants of enslaved Africans and, uh, and Nigeria. And they were unwilling to Meet and have any discussions with the foundation, and so that kind of dissipated. Um, so, bottom line is that we did everything we could to communicate directly, and they were unwilling to cooperate. So we had no choice but to um, focus on these institutions and make their make requests with them to work with us, and, and just you know, I, you know, to to maybe uh, even moderate between us and Nigeria. The Smithsonian was approached first um, in March of 2022. Uh, We, you know, presented them really with our claim. My DNA, in particular, has me, my ancestors, at two ports that were controlled by the Kingdom of Benin during the time of uh, the transatlantic slave trade, and my ancestors were enslaved in the United States. And one of the main same places that Benin Kingdom slaves were brought to, Charleston, South Carolina. One of the other places that most of the Benin Kingdom captives were brought to is Jamaica, believe it or not. And I'm, when I say, I would say probably 90%, at least 90% of the uh, captives from the Kingdom of Benin were enslaved in Jamaica. Okay? Uh, so, that's, so we made the request. The Smithsonian um, director, uh, Nyree Blackenburg, acted as if she'd never heard of the Manila. I was shocked. Her
1: despite books, despite books from the Smithsonian that reference
0: Well, this is exactly the what Manila I presented to them. Her archivist did not know Amy Staples. She did not. She, she said, oh, I think I saw those in, in a, a, a plaque before but they both acted as if they had no clue. And uh, to this day, um, Ms. Blackenberg continues to deny the truth of the slave trade origin of the Benin Bronzes, okay? This is trifling, I I think it's trifling, but it's it's essentially fraud. Um, The Smithsonian has to follow her, I guess, because at this point, you know, it, it would be an admission that they've been engaged in fraud. So they still continue to push this, this uh, theory that it may not be true. But it's absolutely true. The Benin Kingdom writes about it in their own literature. I mean, they, they put the king, the, well, when I say the Benin Kingdom, it's the descendants, it's the, it's the descendants of the kingdom, it's the Oba and his palace, the, the traditional council. They published a book in 2018 called The Benin Monarchy, where they specifically admit to using manilas. They explain why they use the manilas to make the bronzes starting in the 16th century. They admit it themselves. They also admit to enslaving people uh, to use for human sacrifice, slavery domestically at home, and also selling it to the slave trade, for the manilas that they used I mean, they admitted themselves in their own documents, but all of the scholars admit to this. And then some actually have dug a little deeper. Paula Gershik, she's done research uh, along with um, P.T. Craddock on the source of the metal. So we know mm-hmm. that this metal is actually coming out of the German Hartz Mountains, at least a portion. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more research that has to be done, and in fact, I'm trying to uncover that. Did it all come from the Harz Mountain, or were there other sources in Europe? But it appears that the Harz Mountain was a major source of copper for all of Europe. Okay, hmm. okay. so there may, there may also be some Swiss sources. It's not clear. The, the research is, is 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 ongoing, but no one has ever examined the slave trade history of the Benin Bronzes, and that's hmm. a, a area of scholarship that has to start and it definitely Mm. has to happen before these bronzes are all returned to uh to a country actually that did not exist when the bronzes were made and to a group of people who are not the people who the bronzes were taken from but the the heirs just like we are the heirs nigeria Mm. did not exist as as a nation when the benin bronzes were taken so this is a new nation receiving these relics and, and it's descendants of people who were alive 125 years ago who are being given these relics. And so there's something, there's something strange about that arrangement, but this is, we are only now speaking up because we only know who we are because of these DNA tests and the DNA tests are essentially new. So what, our goal is to make sure that we're heard. Now, as far as this,
1: this, this, go ahead. I was just going to interject that one of the other points that I thought was so concerning was one of the Smithsonian representatives, I believe, wrote to you, and it's attached to your declaration that there is confusion about the connection of the Benin Kingdom with slavery. And that seems to also be sort of borderline trying to rewrite history. And and I I just thought it spoke to the points you were making that you're kind of what's what's being admitted in the scholarly work is being now questioned by the Smithsonian. Such a, you know, an institution that's looked at in such high regard. And and it is concerning.
0: Yeah, it's fraud. It's fraud. Um, There's no confusion They're trying to make people think there's confusion. There's absolutely no confusion. And in fact, our declaration also includes um, letters from top scholars on the slave trade. Um, Dr. Paul Lovejoy out of Canada has submitted um, a letter. And while he strongly believes bronzes should be returned to Nigeria, he admitted to the truth how these bronzes were made, and he makes it clear. They were made with manilas, exchanged for humans, paid to the kingdom of Benin for 300-year period. He makes it clear. He points out all of the ports that enslaved people were traded by the kingdom of Benin, uh, and it's quite a broad range. It's st- starting in the port of Lagos, which is right, very close to what is now the Republic of Benin, not to be confused with the kingdom of Benin, um, yeah. and then it goes all the way to Forcados, which is the, is the foot of uh, of a lake that goes up to a lake called Wari, where the Benin Kingdom was sitting. And actually, my ancestors show up on the map coming from that area of Wari. They mm-hmm. also show up coming from the Lagos port. So, you know, we're coming from two sides. My mom my mom on one side, my dad DNA is on the other side. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, he, you know, they verify the truth of of the slave trade origin of the bronzes. So it is actually fraud. And just getting to the lawsuit, what we argue in the lawsuit is that the Smithsonian is violating US law by giving these bronzes as gifts. Um, The law requires that any kind of transfer of relics from the Smithsonian requires consideration, which is payment, they're supposed to be paid. Um, The only circumstance where they don't have to be paid is if it's transferred within the Smithsonian system, okay? Now, the judge missed this. And and, and, then, you know, we were were requesting two things. First of all, we have a complaint that we filed, and then we have a request for an emergency uh, restraining order on the transfer, right? We were trying to stop this quick transfer because the Smithsonian sort of functions without any kind of Notice to the public, we don't we don't get any um, we, we we don't have any input in the rules that they're creating. The whole operation is questionable, and then obviously we found that they are in violation of the law. The way that they're operating, they can give away anything that is held in their uh, museums without any without any compensation. You know, all you need is a rogue person. In, in office, and they can give away anything. This is clearly not the way the law is designed, and so they're violating the law. The judgments...
1: Is- well, I have mm-hmm. a couple of questions about that before we keep going. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was some a reference to um, not... Tell me if I've missed this, or got it wrong, uh, that they consider they, being the Smithsonian, consider the Benin bronze as priceless, and there's no since there's no price tag on it, they didn't need a board of regents vote on whether or not to deaccession them. Is that how that worked?
0: No, that's not how it worked. In fact, because they have such great value, the board of regents did vote. Them. Mm. However, it's pretty clear that if they're telling us there's no connection between the bronzes and slavery, mm-hmm. that it's questionable, that must be what they conveyed to the board members. In other words, they committed fraud and they misled the vice president, Uh, who sits on that board of Regents, and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, all of these folks sit on that board and voted based on information provided to them by the the museum, by by, uh, basically Nairie Blackenberg by the Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's fraud going on. These board members are not fully aware of the truth about this origin. And obviously it matters because... If it didn't matter they would just tell the truth you know they would tell the truth so obviously if they knew that these bronzes were <laughs> not just made by the people in Nigeria uh, today the Edo people they would they would probably not allow them to be transferred or at least create some shared arrangement which is what we are asking we're asking them to share the bronzes let them let them uh, let the Nigerians have the 12th to 15th century relics and keep the 16th to 19th century relics that we paid for with our lives and we continue to pay for with our lives with all of the injustices that we suffer today, the police brutality, the discrimination, all of the sufferings, we haven't recovered from slavery yet. You know, how dare them think that we don't matter, that it's okay to give away relics that we pay for, literally pay for. If we were not enslaved, those bronzes would not exist because they needed this metal to make them. And if they didn't get these this metal selling us, they would not have gotten the metal. This is what was required by the Portuguese and the mm-hmm. British and the Dutch and the so on and so forth. They had to pay for these bronzes in metal.
1: What happened then? The court docket shows there was, I believe, like a conference call or some kind of meeting and then... That day or the next day, it seems uh, the Smithsonian returns 29 of the Benin Bronzes, the ones at issue, and uh, the, the court's decision doesn't come out for several more days.
0: Right. Well, here's what happened. The Okay. So the transfer was officially scheduled for the 11th. We learned about this maybe a week before. and And, you know, I had been... Ch- trying to find counsel to represent us in this case for a while. And I I feel so blessed that a few days, you know, before this transfer took place, I was able to find counsel. In any case, this is a very esoteric issue, you know, and it's very complex for, you know, the most intelligent people to understand. You have to understand this became this.
1: Meaning the Manilas had to become the Benin Bronzes.
0: It means, yes, you have to understand that. You have to understand that there's a lot of research that went into the source of the, of the Manila List. There's so many levels of, of understanding here that, yeah, I, I would, it doesn't surprise me that the judge did not get it. The other thing is that the media had not been covering this story at all. So there was no assistance from the media to, to educate people. In addition to that, all of our accounts where we created our own educational tools are what they call shadow mm. band. There's all these complexities to even watch the movie that we watch. Mm. We, we created. We created a short film that's an excellent educational mm. tool, but you have to continuously log in in order to see it. And you have to provide so much information and it's on YouTube. Miraculously, our, our video that has no sexual uh, content or anything that would normally raise a flag for children, has all of these hurdles in order to be screened. And I, I would speak to reporters that said, we can't get in there. We can't even see the video. So we have been shadow banned. There's just an effort. And I would say, you know, it's, it's normally media that folks would call liberal or progressive that are engaged in, in, in or at least assisting us. I mean, assisting others in blocking the message. So this is a real thing. Going on.
1: And um, that film is, they belong to all of us.
0: They belong to all of us on you,
1: And I was able to see it. So I don't know if they're lifting the ban, perhaps.
0: No, it's hit or miss. It's hit or miss. But but I know right, definitely right at the beginning of the campaign, any any journalist that went to see it would come back to me and say, I can't get it in. And even I had trouble getting in there. And I, you know, we created the thing.
1: It's so well done and does uh, make uh, the point so clearly. So I encourage anyone listening, uh, if they are able to, to watch it. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much for mentioning the name. They belong to all of us. Yes. And um, so, you know, there's just been a lot of hurdles to that, to the the education.
1: Well, so let's focus maybe uh, for a moment. I know that now the case, it had four causes of action and you were denied and dismissed and now you're on appeal, is that right?
0: Exactly. Now, yeah, I mean there, there are a few causes of action, but the most critical one is that they're violating the law. And, and and that's the bottom line. That's the most important one. You know, it's a lot it was not a whole lot of time to take action. And also it's a very novel case. It almost looks like slavery reparations and you know a lot of judges are afraid to make any decision. That would allow for slavery reparations, but this is not a slavery reparations case. This is a restitution case, uh, and also uh, a concern that the Smithsonian is giving away something like $200 million worth of relics uh, and that they should be paid for. Okay. This is illegal. It's
1: illegal. With the, at the end of your documentary, there is a, a rolling list of all the institutions that, or uh, are, are at least a, many of the institutions that hold Benin bronzes. Uh, what are your thoughts on going forward with, as, because restitution of these objects is becoming more and more popular, what are your thoughts on other institutions that might be doing that? And, and would you, do you have your eye towards perhaps, uh, contacting or have you already contacted any other institutions about this?
0: Yes, we, we have been in communication with the institutions. And let me just be clear. We do not oppose the return of some of these relics to the Indian Kingdom. And no, they're not all metal. Some of them are ivory, some are wood, and some are leather. And, you know, anything, we're only interested in metal ones from the 16th to the 19th century. So any metal and all of the other materials, they, they can have them. My great concern about even those is that they are disappearing. They're not necessarily going to be sitting in a museum in Nigeria. And we know already that they're not all going back there. But just the ones that that we paid for, that our ancestors paid for with their lives, we want these institutions to keep them. So yes, we've been in touch with other institutions in the United States to make sure that they understand the history because we know the history is hidden. No one, you know, when the when the Benin Kingdom is making their request for their, these bronzes, they're not saying part of them were made from slave trade. No, they're not discussing that. They're very quiet about that part of the story, and then the folks are very ignorant about that. They all all you ever hear is that they were stolen. They were they, their villages were destroyed, and you know all of this kind of stuff. And this is something, you know, once again, the massacre that the Benin Kingdom initiated was in. Uh, uh, eighteen ninety six and then a few months later the the expedition took place where the British retaliated and took the bronzes. And the bronzes were taken in the same way that enslaved Africans were taken from the, the Union. Um, African enslaved people were taken uh, with the Emancipation Proclamation from the rebels from the Confederacy, we were taken according to the laws of war. Um, And these bronzes were taken according to the law of war. They were taken because anything that gives the enemy power can legitimately be taken according to the laws of war. We were being used to dig ditches for the Confederacy, to feed them and all kinds of labor the slaves were, were being required to do for the rebels during the Civil War. And Lincoln managed to liberate the slaves and win the war because of that liberation, that act of liberation. In the Benin Kingdom with the British during this expedition, these bronzes were used for war power, whether whether it was psychological or whether or not there's some real spiritual power they were getting, they were used for war power. They had just gotten finished slaughtering 250 people. And if you see the descriptions from those British Navy officers, they describe folks who were hanging from trees all over the place. bloody. It was just a bloody scene that they walked into. And then they ended up being added to the folks hanging from the trees and slaughtered and bodies. And it's just horrible. The, The scene is just horrible. And we try to show some of that in our short film. So these bronzes were not stolen, they were taken. It was a, 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 a war power and it actually accomplished just what the British needed to accomplish. It shut down the human sacrifice. It slowed down the Benin Kingdom's slaughtering of, of humans and the slave trade. And unfortunately, yeah, they had to destroy, destroy the village but nobody ever tells you the actual story. They always say, oh, they came in, they destroyed our lives, and, and uh, people are so sympathetic because they think, oh, these poor folks. They don't understand that these folks were the Nazis in their era. They were the Nazis for us. And African-American people are feeling so sympathetic. We have been trained to not discuss the role that Africans play in the enslavement of us. We have been taught that slavery was nice in Africa. It's nothing like what it became here in America. I think it is a horrible disservice that has been done to us because part of our challenge is, you know, is educating us about the fact that this was a horrible thing that was done, to us and it wasn't necessary either. I mean, the human sacrifice was not necessary to make these bronzes. Are you kidding me? This is unbelievable. But what I do believe is that if we are able to keep these bronzes. There's a lot of information that we can learn researching them. For example, if we know the era that a particular bronze was made, we can, we can, we can link this up with the various slave trading uh, voyages within the transatlantic slave trade. We might be able to, there may be DNA in these things because there, there is some kind of residue, wax residue that is remaining in them. So there may be things that we can learn about the people, the trips, the locations from the actual bronzes. They are forensic items. This is for forensic research. There's just so much so much information that we need. And, and if we allow them to take, especially the ones from our, the period where we were enslaved, we give away all of the information that we could possibly learn about ourselves. In addition to that, I have a daughter who does, who's, who's a, a graduate student uh, in uh, museum studies, she wants to be a curator. She's she's now writing about how, how you use these relics to bring African American people into museums because we don't visit as much as other groups of people, um, and so there's a lot of information we never get access to. But these this kind of information to learn that it's the actual currency that we were sold for, the, the reason why we are in this land where we don't get a whole lot of respect from the government, um, unrepresented most of the time, because no, the government is not even addressing our our concerns around these bronzes. um Our lives, we have such a struggle here in this country. A lot of folks just don't understand we are unrepresented most of the time. We need to know, as everything we can about these things, and, and it, it, it's just, uh, I think it's just, um, it, it's it's like having the crime committed all over again, giving the money back to the heirs of the slave trade. It's, it's unbelievable.
1: Going back to the the dating of these objects and and where they are placed, do we have an idea of how many are were created in that sixteenth to nineteenth century time frame and where they are located right now?
0: Well, right now the bronzes are all over, you know, all over all over the world. Okay. I hear different numbers. I hear there's half uh, there's 5000 and uh, uh, one of uh, Dan Hicks, who's written a book called The Brutish Museums. Uh, he he says there are about 10,000 of them. We don't really know how many they are, but in Dan's book, there's a quote from Paula Gershik, who is a major scholar on the bronzes. She says most of the bronzes are from the slave trade. Mm-hmm. They're, they're most of them, are, and then she really gives a very passionate description of how these the the British uh, have provided metal that has me- melted down into these bronzes. So mm-hmm. uh, most of them is what is said. I mean, we know that there's certain types of bronzes that were never even made into the slave trade, and those are the plaques. So all of those plaques that you see, mm-hmm. all of the plaques that you see, are coming from the slave trade, mm. okay? And many more. Now, what they do also, and let me just say, what we don't know, we can find out because they they can trace the metal. They know the difference between the metal that's coming from Europe and the metal that's coming from Africa. Mm. So they can identify the difference between the copper coming from Germany, for example, I mentioned before, the Hartz Mountains and other places. So they know, they know. What is what now, one of the things I've seen that I think is very interesting is that when the bronzes uh were being examined by one of the African scholars from from Nigeria, she was very concerned with removing all labeling from the bronzes because it was like the bronzes or their ancestors being branded like 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 we were literally branded as as slaves, but really what what she was doing was removing the ability to track a particular bronze. I mean, those those whatever kinds of serial numbers or labeling that are on these relics is necessary for us to know one from the other. Most of these museums can tell you a bronze is from the 15th century, it's, it's the 16th century, and you'll see that in most uh, most catalogues. You'll see it, um, yeah, with most of the museums and the books. You'll they know, for example. The, the, the Windsor Castle in the UK, the King now has a Benin bronze. That's a 16th century Benin bronze. So we know that that one is from right at the beginning of the slave trade. It's an overhead that they have there. That is ours, okay? He's got it sitting over there in Windsor, Windsor Palace and I personally think he should leave it there and do some fundraising for annually for the descendants mm-hmm. of the slave Africans. I think to bring people in and use it as an opportunity to educate about these bronzes and raise some money and give it to the British, you know, the black British community who are descendants of enslaved Africans. This is what I think would be an honorable thing for them to do.
1: Mm. And is that the one that was gifted by a Benin King decades ago?
0: Not a Benin King, by one of the leaders of Nigeria. Uh, mm. It was supposed to be replicated. But apparently, the replica was didn't look, and there wasn't enough time to make it right. So he just snatched the original right out of the the uh, museum and gave it and gave it to the queen. Mm-hmm. And and this is a this kind of thing has been a regular practice. Um, and so you know, I, I met up with one uh, photojournalist who had the opportunity to visit uh, one of the Benin City museums. And he said that the shells were empty. there were just so, so many bronzes that were missing. and he was told that, oh yeah, when the leaders want a, a gift to give to someone, just take a bronze and give it to mm. them and uh, so this is and this is something that you know there's so much fuss about we got to get them back, they're our heritage, all of this, and they they they've been giving them away. I'll give you another example. If you look at the digital Benin database, you'll see, for example, for the National Benin City Museum, um, maybe uh, 150 out of 300 uh, images are historic photographs. In other words, they're pictures of pictures, okay? What that means is that they didn't have the original on display or anywhere nearby to take a mm-hmm. picture. I mean, you can snap a seconds with a cell phone yeah and have a good quality photograph to add to a database. But no, all they had were pictures of pictures. So that means about 150 relics have disappeared already. And the, But this is not news. A lot of folks know this, and one of the things we, we want these institutions around the world to pay attention to is that this is it. When these relics disappear, when they're sold into private collections or given away, by the very people who insist they must have them back because it's their culture, um, there's no more of that. And so one of the things we want to make sure that American uh, stakeholders understand is that they don't have to give these bronzes back. They don't have to return them. They can keep these bronzes, and then we'll end up being one of the only places in the world that you can see a beneath mm. bronze. If Germany wants to be so generous to give away the bronzes they have, and the UK feels obligated. Um, They won't have any, but we will still have some over Mm -hmm. here. And there's no obligation, especially now that they know that we have an interest in these bronzes. The descendants of enslaved Africans are dispersed all over the world because of slavery. Wherever we are, those bronzes should be, okay? Particularly the ones from the 16th and 19th century. So there's no excuse for anyone to give away a bronze from that time period. Forget it. How could they justify receiving these bronzes? And let me just say, what makes their case even worse is that they never stopped trafficking people. They never stopped killing people. It has never stopped. And when I say they, I mean the Edo people, all the, the people of the Benin Kingdom that were enslaving us, you know, as far back as, I probably even the 12th, to 12th century, but within, within uh, Africa. But from the 16th century, they are the ones that was now their children are still doing the same. thing. That is the that is the hub of the African slave trade, the city. If you go online, you see CNN, they have a heart wrenching report of how young girls are being uh, uh, sold into sex slavery in France and Germany. They're all over the streets in Germany. They're all over the parks in Paris. Naked. I mean, they are walking around in their underwear. This is how it goes. Ninety percent of these young women are slaves. And the court makes it very clear. These women have, have no choice. They have to make sixty-five thousand pounds before they can be free to go back, back home. Um, but they are they are kidnapped and forced into sex slavery. And those who are those are the lucky ones because the unlucky ones have their internal organs removed and they're dumped. Into the ocean, uh, you know, leaving out of uh, Liberia, no, not Liberia, Libya, out of Libya. So this is a real thing that's going on. It's a battle. It's a struggle that the the the, the organizations in in Edo State struggling to keep their girls safe and alive. And I and I, I have to mention we did a we did a a, a chat, a clubhouse chat, with uh, some of the Nigerian young people. They were shocked to learn that there, for 150 years, the Kingdom of Benin mostly only enslaved women. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were devastated. This caused a major battle amongst the young people. The men, because the young, the young men were like, well, you know, well, we stopped enslaving people. And the women were like, no, you didn't stop enslaving. We're people, you kept enslaving mm-hmm. us. And, and this is what happened for 150 years. And here we have it that today, but women are still being enslaved by the same, by the same uh, ethnically. It's, it's a tragedy. We reward them for their slave trading culture by returning slave trade Benin bonds. Yeah. and we really cannot. We, it's just you know. So folks have to pay attention and understand. This is real, the documentation is there. Our case provides all of the evidence. We have, once again, I mentioned one top scholar. The other scholar who um, provided information is an African scholar out of the University of Dakar, Dr. Ibrahim Sek. His background is the translation of the French portions of the transatlantic slave trade database. So his expertise is on that slave trade database. And he's the one that fleshed out the numbers that we know with absolute certainty And we are engaged in research to learn more about the other people who were enslaved. For example, two of the biggest ports controlled by uh, the Benin Kingdom, we have no, we have no slave trading documents on, right? So we have to search for them, figure out how to glean them from the other documentation. These are Uga and Wari. These were the two of the top ports used by the Kingdom of Benin. But there's nothing. There's not we don't we don't have a single slave sold from those mm. ports, okay? And they, and those were the largest mm. ports, You understand? So we know the numbers are much greater yeah. that were sold.
1: Yeah, there's a big gap.
0: Yes, yes. So I mean, just to give you a sense of you know what's going on, but it, it's heart wrenching. I tell you, it, it's been uh, an education for me because I I, I it, it was news to me to learn about the the modern day slave trading, and it's baffling that these nations. That are plagued with these these um, women who are who are uh, enslaved would even consider returning the bronze. I mean Germany, you know, they're like you know like the biggest cheerleaders on returning the bronzes, and no, they actually participated in the enslavement mm-hmm. of us to make those bronzes, okay and they and they they have um, you know so many of the women, the sex slaves, on their streets. I can't even understand why they would not um, address those issues. Why would they not um, require something more from Nigeria on those enslaved women um, before giving anything back? You know, it's just, to me, it's it's baffling, you know, but I, I I do know that they have made a decision to not return all the Bronzes. And I hope that, you know, it's because they've heard the message and they understand you Know that they, they, they Nigeria should not be getting these uh, relics back for various reasons, you
1: know. Um, uh, that I've mentioned already, depending on how the appeal goes going forward with the Smithsonian, they still have, I believe, 10 Benin bronzes left, and all the other institutions, uh, that still have bronzes. Would you see? perhaps alternative dispute resolution, like some kind of um, arbitration process that you might be able to uh, go forward with as opposed to filing suits?
0: Well, with with respect to American institutions, I believe it's just a matter of having conversations and education. And uh, we've already begun that with a few of the institutions. I I believe the best approach is just one-on-one. We have to really reach out to each one, help them to understand what it is that they have and um, make ourselves available to work with them on alternative solutions. Um, You know, there's one museum that has already agreed to do one of the things that we propose, and that is to create opportunities for descendants of enslaved Africans Mm -hmm. to intern or to work with the bronzes. Um, uh, Also, to allow for entrepreneurs opportunities. Um, there's, you know, scholars and, and business folks who have businesses who have an interest in, you know, doing different types of things with the bronzes, not, not even having to remove them from the museum, but, you know, different types of replication technologies. Yeah. They have an interest in that. Allow the sins of enslaved Africans access to these because they do belong to us. They, they, they are our legacy wealth. You know, this is literally the money that should have been paid to our ancestors to make a decision to come to work in the amenities. This is the money, you know, we should have been paid that. So I think it's only reasonable for that. So, yeah, now I don't I don't anticipate having to fight with them. And in fact, we didn't want to have to do this. And let me just say, I'm paying for this stuff out of my salary. In other words, it, it is my salary. I am paying my whole salary to the lawyers and you know so last year salary went to the best part of the case this year's salary is going to the next part of the case it's my income we're not having a whole lot of success raising money because people just don't understand what's going on and we're doing our best to educate Um, we don't have time to educate before we take action um you know we don't have time to convince folks to give you know we are working on that but we have to, we have to take action now. So it's, it's, it's what I have, or, or it's not, no action at all. And the Bronzes will be gone. Um, so yeah, so I do believe this particular case was necessary because if we didn't take action, they would be gone plain and simple. Um, uh, but we don't, I don't think we're going to have to file lawsuits for everything. Uh, in the UK, we do have, um, we were able to submit, um, what do you call them? They're like petitions to interfere with other transfers. Hmm. We made requests to the Charities Commission in the UK. Um, And so there's a process where they review our requests. um, and, And so it is holding up the transfer while folks have an opportunity to learn about the bronzes. But part of it is also that people know that there's someone who has an interest, a proper interest in these bronzes because they just never knew, yeah. you know, that there was anyone here that cared. Yeah. You know, when I say here, I mean, descendants of enslaved Africans, wherever we are, they just felt that everyone thought they should go back to, to Africa. And that's absolutely wrong.
1: Does, absolutely wrong. Does the UK petition, does that uh, cover all institutions within the UK or was it specific? naming certain ones
0: it has to name each individual institution
1: however
0: you know these are the institutions that petition the charity commission to make the transfer and, and all any charity has to go through the charity commission yeah. to transfer what we believe though is um, institutions uh, can learn from the petition effort that they don't have to return them. See, a lot of these organizations are under the belief that it's the right thing to do, uh, and 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 they've they've been pressured. There have been some um, some action on the streets. You know, some of the protesters have come to them on the issue, but you know, those sadly, those protesters we were not made aware of the, the slave trade origin.
1: Yeah, You know, yeah.
0: this is the reality. I mean, and no one has taken the time to tell them. So it's just been a whole lot of deception going on. So at this point, they know there are descendants of enslaved Africans who do not want all of these bonds returned. They have all the explanation, all the excuse, whatever you want to call it, to keep them and to make them accessible to the descendants of enslaved Africans and the rest of the world and and i I'm just, I'm just i'm just i just pray that even your broadcast will reach as many people as possible so they know there are people here that want these bronzes to remain accessible forever you know when they go back to nigeria we don't know what's going to happen to them the, and that's this is another thing that the judge got wrong in our case he thinks there's a place for these bronzes to go he thinks that when those bronzes left out of the smithsonian that they were going Right on the shelf of another museum. Those museums that are supposed to be built won't be done. They're not even. They, they haven't even begun building them. So maybe by 2024 there'll be something. 2025. Okay, this is this. These are the dates that we're talking about. I mean, it's you know, it's 2022 right now. Um. So we don't know if any museum will ever be built for these things. And in fact, there's still fighting going on in um in in Edo State. Between the Oba who wants these bronzes at the palace, and uh, the head of the museum or the the governor of the state Obaseki, uh, they're fighting. We don't know what's gonna what's gonna happen to these bronzes.
1: Uh, going back to a point I had raised earlier, that the Smithsonian would have returned gone gone forward with its return plan even before the court had made its written decision. I wondered did the court indicate to you that they were not going to find in your favor and that's what gave the smithsonian the confidence to go forward with the returns before the court's decision came out
0: well i i i would have to say you know i can be a little bit paranoid the paranoid side of me <laughs> says this this was a political decision coming out of the court okay um the judge is african american he's an Obama appointee, this decision is being made under you know, Obama's former vice president. I don't know, I, I, I don't mm. know what to make of it because to me, it's the most bizarre thing that an African-American, probably a descendant of enslaved Africans would, would make a, a decision allowing slave traders to receive relics. And yeah. honestly, we presented everything that is accurate and, and just in our arguments. Yeah. We were asking that they just be held until the end of the litigation, right? We yeah. wanted an opportunity to prove that the Smithsonian is violating the law. Now, the good news is, is this. You said 20 bronzes, but it's actually more, more than 20 bronzes at, in question, and it's more than 10 that are, that are still here. There were 29 bronzes that were deaccessioned by the Board of Regents. 20 of those were transferred, physically transferred. Nine of them were placed on loan for five years. Okay. The mm-hmm. loan is to the Smithsonian from the government of Nigeria. Okay. And mm-hmm. we know this whole arrangement is void because the whole transfer is illegal. But we're going to prove that when we're in court. So right now we have mm-hmm. nine from that transfer that is still here in the United States. There were initially 39 bronzes that were supposed to be transferred. So 10 of them were set aside because they wanted to make sure that they were taken during the punitive expedition. Okay. So Mm -hmm. that's an additional 10. So that's 19 now that we have here. They announced, that is the Smithsonian announced in their October 11 press release, that there's another 20 coming from, I believe it's the National Museum of, a uh, 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 the Museum of National uh, Natural History or something like that. So it's another one of the Smithsonian Museums that have an additional 20 bronzes that they want to deaccession. Okay? Mm. Uh, and they made it clear that they will be doing that. And so we've been monitoring to ensure that that does not happen. And so far, as far as we know, it did not happen this year. Okay? So what do we have now? So we have 19. So there are 39 Benin bronzes that could be transferred to Nigeria. And so the case that is pending will impact on that. Now what is the case? Mm. We are appealing the original decision. Okay. Now the, the decision was that they that they denied our motion for an emergency restraining. Room. Okay. So why why do we still what's the emergency at this point? The emergency is the Smithsonian can at any point change the agree- agreement that they have for the five-year loan and so the nine that are being held could end up being transferred. They could at any point the de- ascension without even giving us notice so the uh, an, an, another uh, uh, 30 could end up, uh, another 20 could end up going. So th- there's so many, there's so many variables. I'm sorry, so it could be <laughs> at any point, 39 bronzes could be shifted. It, it, you know, could happen at, in the middle of January, for all we know. And that's why we believe appealing the decision is the right way to go. We need to be able to know what's going on with the Smithsonian. They need to not be able to violate the law. And we want to reverse the decision. So we don't expect to ever get back the bronzes that we sent over there. Okay. Okay. Um, but... But well, we can avoid the law, and they will know that they are in possession of U.S. property, right? Okay.
1: So that's about the and
0: that's the best that we could do.
1: And the, those thirty-nine that are still here—that is just for the Smithsonian. Exactly. There are still many others. How many in the U.S. have you been able to tally?
0: At this point, it looks like there may be about eight hundred. But you know, folks. <laughs> People are sending me images. Oh, I was at the Barnes museum. It's a museum in in, uh, in uh, Philadelphia and they're sending me images of bronzes that they saw there. There are many bronzes all over the place. We don't know which are real and which aren't. Uh, yeah. But once again, this decision is specific to the Smithsonian, but the Smithsonian case is symbolic um, because first of all, you get an idea of what the U S feels about the bronzes, And of course, there's been such effective media blockage on the story that mm-hmm. you get a sense of what does the, the, the U.S. media think about uh, the bronzes. Mm-hmm. The sense is that progressive media think they should go back. They don't want to hear the conversation that we are bringing forward. And it is justice, and, and my position is this: I'm a reparations activist. I believe that this is just as strong of a case as any other. Uh, That if if we should be demanding reparations or restitution from a corporation, from a country, then we should demand it from everyone. I mean, I just find it hypocritical that there are people who believe, oh, you can ask some people, but don't ask Africans. Don't ask African people for it. Oh, and, and of course, I was trained to believe because Africans were forced to engage in the slave trade. And I know to a certain extent that is true. However, that's over now. You have relics that belong to two groups of people, Africans in the diaspora and Africans in the the nation. Share them, you know, just because, you know, you were forced to be engaged in the slave trade does not mean that you cannot engage in restitution and justice today. And I believe all of these nations in possession of these relics, you know, who feel compelled to address the issue of colonialism, need to understand that this mm-hmm. go, these bronzes are not just about colonialism, they're about the slave trade. They go further, further mm-hmm. back and honestly, if maybe we, if, if the slave trade didn't happen, colonialism probably would not have been possible, you know, because mm-hmm. their best and their strongest soldiers, fighters were all sold into, slave, into the slave trade. The relationships were formed between these slave trading nations and African nations. And and I think the African folks maybe got a little too comfortable with their European friends, and and mm-hmm. found themselves losing their own homelands. Where we were, when we were no longer needed as as uh, chattel, you know, they mm-hmm. came for them. They came for them. Yeah. And um, sadly, you know, I mean, I almost feel like there's some kind of karmic thing in connection with that. Because when you learn exactly how the slavery was practiced, how the Benin Kingdom slaughtered us. You know the kinds of horrible things that were done. The Africans, Africans in in the, in the nations, they weren't nice. That their, their slavery wasn't nice like we were told. I mean, you know, are images of folks who were beheaded. I mean, you know, in the late uh, 1800s, you can actually see coming from some of the kingdoms, not the Benin kingdom, but they did behead people too. But you can actually see mm-hmm. photographs of folks being beheaded um, by some of these kingdoms. It was brutal, it was brutal. And that, so there's no, you know, that I, don't, I don't believe that we should only be focusing on white businesses or white people for the demand for slavery, uh, uh, slavery reparations or restitution. There's anybody, we should be focusing on anyone who played a role. And I think that's the, that's the approach. We need to retrain ourselves to understand. Everyone can play a role and I'll add this, you know, another part of the easiest things that African nations can do. Like Nigeria, is to extend to us dual citizenship. We are mm. victims of ethnicity. We have DNA tests today that let us know which nations we are connected to. Allow us dual citizenship so that we can establish establish a, a home in our homeland. Other folks do it every day. My you know, my, my husband is German, my daughter is part African American and and, and and German. She's a German citizen. During the pandemic, in two months, she got her passport. Her citizenship was established in Germany, so now she can go and work in Germany if she wanted to. You know this. You know other other people do this for their people. You know, but Africa doesn't do it for us. And I believe you know all of the Pan African love that discourages folks from paying attention to the role that Africa played in enslaving us needs to be reexamined if the love is not even allowing us to be welcomed home with citizenship. It's just, you know, I I think this whole argument would be different if Nigeria had extended to descendants of enslaved Africans dual citizenship, because then a return of the bronzes would be to our African homeland. You know, I can't claim that as my homeland. They won't even allow me to be a citizen. So, you know, but these are little things that are big that Africa can do to, to yeah. address the issue of, of uh, restitution and justice and make things a little bit more harmonious. And then maybe then they can actually speak for us. Instead of, you know, you may have heard, instead of lately, they've been demanding reparations for slavery. Mm. They've been demanding reparations for slavery, which is, mm. you know, they're getting reparations for slavery. They're getting our bronzes, you know? Yeah. And, we're, and we're not allowed to, to enjoy them as co-owners
1: oh uh, well I, I i'm so moved by this news it really is news to i think so many you've said it was news to you all of the information you've been sharing and and so you have several times referenced the historical gaps that are there so to me a lot of what you're doing speaks to historical justice. And I just wonder, and you've referenced justice several times, how do you define justice and, and has that definition evolved over the course of your career?
0: Um no it hasn't. I mean I define it as as a fairness, um, reasonable decisions that um that bring about a sense of harmony amongst two or more groups of people. Um So in the case of the Bronzes, I think a decision that provides even nominal co-ownership where there are some privileges extended to the descendants of enslaved Africans. Um, For example, through the internships and educational opportunities, employment opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities. That's what justice would look like, along with changing the narrative around the Bronzes. We need to really know that slave trade history. And so there's a lot of scholarly research that has to happen. You know, there's many questions that can be answered if the bronzes remain they're research properly. Um, we just haven't addressed that. And I think I actually I think I'm excited about the prospects of that kind of research happening. And I think any academic institution, library in possession of the bronzes, and really any museum that's in possession of, of these relics should also be excited about the potential for this kind of research. It's an opportunity to bring in new audiences um, with this education. Um, it's just really, I think it's really uh, exciting. I, I think not, a, not enough people know about these relics, but I think if the, the proper light is shine on them, a lot more folks will pay attention to these funds. They will become much more valuable uh, to the the world museums as and, and to the Nigerians as well.
1: Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to share?
0: Uh, I think I've shared, I
1: think I've shared plenty. <laughs> yeah, but let me just say this. I also think
0: there's an opportunity for Nigeria. Um, to 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 shine in this manner, they haven't really spoken up on the slave trade origin yet. But I think it would be an honorable thing if they did, and if they themselves made the decision to to say, we want these relics to remain in these institutions so that the descendants of enslaved Africans have access to them too. I think that would be an honorable thing. I think that's you know the kind of self uh, management or independence that you know African nations should have over decision making I, I think it shows also that they are worthy of the kind of compassion that they want others to extend to them so yeah i believe you know i i, I believe there's a there's a noble prize waiting for the african leader that can stand up and be honest about
1: There will be a link in the show notes to learn more about the Restitution Study Group. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe on your preferred platform. And if you'd like to support more episodes like this, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review. You can also leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law Podcast or email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. And the podcast Patreon page has rewards for those interested at patreon.com forward slash Warfare of Art and Law. Until next time, this is Stephanie Droddy bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the Second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every Second Saturday at 1pm Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire. To legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at com.